Want more control over your life? You need more control over your money. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and that's why I started the Her Money Podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, I can help you get there. So join me. Subscribe to Her Money with Jean Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, thanks for tuning in again to the second podcast for Straight A Nursing Student. I do want to apologize for the kind of long delay in between postings. I've been crazy busy and am really going to work on doing this more regularly because it's really fun and hopefully really useful for you guys. So if you've been on the website in the last few days or I guess maybe the last couple of weeks, you'll notice that I put up a latte reference sheet for ARDS and wrote a little bit about that. So I wanted to do a podcast today on ARDS so that you can utilize different learning methods for this syndrome. So with the latte method, you've read it and now you will be hearing it. So you're using different parts of your brain, which is part of the whole straight A system of studying that worked so well for me and I think will work really well for you. So what is ARDS? ARDS is an acronym that stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome and basically this is lung injury, acute lung injury at its worst. It is a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, meaning it is pulmonary edema not caused by heart failure. And it involves malfunction of the alveolar and capillary membrane. So usually that membrane is where gas exchange occurs. In ARDS, that membrane is injured or malfunctioning and gas exchange is not occurring there. So some of the things that cause ARDS, uh, a lot of it is like an aspiration pneumonia is probably one of the most common ones. Also pneumonia, getting septic, sometimes uh, they say oxygen toxicity can cause it as well, and even severe pancreatitis. So those are just a few things that can cause or lead to ARDS. Also, of course, an actual physical injury to the lung can cause it as well. It has an extremely high mortality rate of 30 to 50 percent and in the ICU where I work I've seen people well a lot of people frankly die because of ARDS or the complications associated with it so whenever someone recovers I'm actually almost a little bit surprised in a really good way that they made it through because it is a long and difficult and intense recovery from this from this acute lung injury so basically what happens in ARDS? Well, the short version is that there's inflammation, massive inflammation. The initial kind of presentation of ARDS will be a very sudden and 
rapidly progressive respiratory failure. So your patient will be extremely short of breath, will have um, hypoxemia despite giving them more and more FiO2. And if you were to look at a chest x-ray, which you're always going to do if your patient presents with difficulty breathing, you will see uh, what's sometimes called a white out or ground glass appearance or what else do they call it? It looks kind of like fluffy white cottony things on the chest x-ray and it'll be over the entire lung. And the more dense that is, the more severe the ARDS. So what happens with ARDS is that there's some kind of direct or it could be indirect injury to the lungs that causes ischemia or inflammation. And this ischemia or inflammation or inflammation rather traumatizes those little capillary membranes and then you go into the whole pathophysiology of ARDS. So what could cause this injury? We talked about infection and things like that. So a direct injury would be a pneumonia or um, a chest trauma or an aspiration, something that directly involves the lungs. And then an indirect injury would be something like sepsis or pancreatitis, something like that. So when you have this injury to the lungs, there's this massive inflammatory response by the lungs. And when this inflammatory response occurs, the membrane permeability changes. So the alveoli are gonna get full of fluid from that interstitial space and the surfactant goes down or completely goes away. And if you remember that surfactant keeps alveoli open, you can understand why it would be very bad if you didn't have that anymore. And when you're in ARDS, you're not gonna be making any more surfactant. So the alveoli are just gonna close off. They're no longer going to be participating in gas exchange. And that's why you have that refractory hypoxemia. So there's pretty much three phases to the pathophysiology of ARDS. The first phase occurs in that first day after the initial insult, whatever it is that caused the problem. And this is called the exudative phase. And in this phase, you've got some damage to the capillaries, you've got reduced blood flow to the lungs, and you've got the fluid starting to leak into this interstitial space that eventually will get into the alveoli. And then someone can hang out in the exec, I can't, I was gonna say executive phase, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense exudative phase for a little while, but then you have the proliferative phase, and this is where things start to get bad and they get bad pretty fast. So this is where the surfactant cells are severely damaged. And if you recall that surfactant, you know, not only does it keep the alveoli open, but it makes the lungs easier to inflate. We call that lung compliance. So you have the loss of the surfactant, the alveoli collapse, you no longer have gas exchange, and your lungs are no longer compliant. So if your patient gets to this stage, they're looking at getting on a ventilator for sure, definitely, and possibly being on it for quite a while. And then there's a third phase called the fibrotic phase. And this is where pulmonary edema can get worse. You've got more inflammation, which leads to increased fibrosis, and even worsening gas exchange. And once you've got fibrotic tissue in the lungs, it's there, it cannot be reversed. So someone who has really bad ARDS and develops pulmonary fibrosis is going to have lung problems for the rest of their life. 
So let's see, what are some signs and some symptoms of ARDS? So your patient is going to present in severe respiratory distress. It will be kind of a sudden onset. They will be tachypnic. They'll be anxious and restless because of the hypoxia. They will be having increased work of breathing. You'll notice use of accessory muscles. And their lung sounds are gonna be coarse or crackly. They kind of start out not so bad and then they get awful bad. They get so bad that you can often hear them without using a stethoscope. You're obviously going to do a chest x-ray on this patient like we talked about earlier and that's where you'll see those bilateral infiltrates, the white out, the ground glass appearance, whatever. When you look at the x-ray, and I'll put up a sample of what a ARDS chest x-ray looks like on the website, but it's going to be that white, puffy, cloudy, kind of swirly, cotton ball looking, kind of like a, just a haze throughout the whole lung. You are going to be doing an ABG, obviously, and one of the things you'll do on the ABG is you're going to look at the PF ratio. And the PF ratio is a simple calculation that you can do off of your ABG, and you're going to take the P, which is your PaO2, and divide that by the FiO2. So take the, let's say for instance that they were showing a PaO2 of 98 on 30% FiO2. So you'll take 98 divided by 0 0.30, so you convert whatever your FiO2 is to a decimal, and that would give you 326. Well, if that number were below 200, that would be indicative of ARDS. Of course, you don't just go by numbers, you take the whole picture. You would take the PF ratio below 200, the difficulty breathing, the refractory hypoxemia, and the chest x-ray, and put that all together to come up with the diagnosis that the patient is an ARDS. They will have um, a low oxygen level on that ABG. Initially, they may have a low uh, CO2 level because they'll be hyperventilating, because they'll be trying and trying and trying to get breath. But as they get tired and they cannot sustain that, that CO2 is going to go up. And so your pH will change accordingly for that. And uh, eventually, they will be in respiratory acidosis with the low pH. I've seen as low as 6.9, which is very, very, very incompatible with life. And you need to do something about that ASAP. So you've got your patient, and you kind of know what they're going to be looking like. So you go into the room to assess them. So you're going to... Uh, Look at their respiratory rate. Look at their work of breathing and their use of accessory muscles. You're gonna look at their oxygen saturation. Because hypoxemia can also cause a lot of problems with the heart, you're going to make sure that this patient is on a monitor so that you can watch for arrhythmias. You will also be monitoring their mental status. So as patients get hypoxic, they get very restless, Your previously pleasant and cooperative patient may become disoriented or combative or kind of cranky and taking off their oxygen, taking off their leads, just picking at things and restless. Um, this is probably a sign that they're hypoxic, especially if a little bit later they get really drowsy. That just means that they got really tired, they got really hypoxic, and then their CO2 elevated. And so it's not that they just got sleepy, it's that they probably need an ABG and some oxygen.
You're also going to assess their lung sounds. Again, it may start out just very faint little crackles and become very coarse. I've heard lung sounds that sound like a washing machine. Seriously, you can't even hear inhale and exhale. It's just this sound. So, um, and that patient survived amazingly so. So um, those are kind of the main things that you're going to assess for your patient, as well as monitoring for any complications that come with being on a ventilator, that come with being immobile, lying in bed, and stuff like that, you know, DVT, skin breakdown, ventilator-acquired pneumonia, et cetera. So the next thing you want to consider is what tests will be ordered for this patient. So you either A, know what tests to ask for, or you know what test results to go looking for as you're looking through the chart. We've talked about an ABG. Um, by the time you get this patient, it will probably show respiratory acidosis as they have gotten tired. CO2 has risen. And like I said, sometimes you'll see a pH so low, like 6.9, 7, really low, especially um, in cases of sepsis. So maybe more of a metabolic thing then, but you're going to see more acidosis than alkalosis in ARDS. You will be panculturing them especially because sepsis can be a big contributor to ARDS, as can aspiration pneumonia. So pan culture is everything, blood, sputum, uh, what's the other one, urine, just get samples of everything and see if anything grows. They may do a bronchoscopy and get into the lungs and really try to clean them out and take a look around. They'll take washings from that bronchial lavage and send that off for testing as well. Uh, chest x-ray again will show that white out. That can take up to a day to appear, so even if you don't see it on day one, you may see it on day two and beyond. These patients will most likely be getting daily chest x-rays so that the physicians can evaluate the fluid and hopefully the resolution of all that fluid and inflammation over the course of their treatment. Some patients may even need a CT scan of the chest, um, especially to see if there's any other contributing issues for why their lungs are non-compliant or why they are so hypoxic. And a CBC, again, patient may be septic, a CBC is gonna give you a lot of valuable information. So how are we gonna treat this patient who is in ARDS? First thing you want to do, and this is the answer to a lot of issues, is you want to treat the underlying cause. Are they septic? We'll treat the sepsis. Um, do they have pneumonia? Treat the pneumonia. Whatever their underlying cause is, if it's treatable and will improve their ARDS, absolutely treat that underlying cause. They are going to be on a ventilator. Most of the time I see patients on a ventilator with pressure control mode. And the respiratory therapist follows something called ARDS protocol from ards.net, ARDS.net, if you want to look it up. They have a ton of information on their website about ARDS. And so what your respiratory therapist will do is take your ABG results and make ventilator adjustments based on their CO2, their pH, their oxygen levels. And so they'll be adjusting things like the FiO2, the pressure support, the PEEP, the tidal volumes, all that kind of stuff. So, um, Let's say that you've got them on pressure control ventilation and they're not doing well and they need something a little bit more intense. They may do something called inverse ratio ventilation. So with regular ventilation, if you recall, your ratios are kind of a longer inspiration with a shorter exhale. Well, when you inverse that, you switch it around and your inhale is shorter and your expiration or exhalation is prolonged. Well, whenever you mess with 
natural, normal physiology and breathing patterns, it's extremely uncomfortable for the patient. So a patient on inverse ratio is going to be sedated, probably not paralyzed unless they're really, really fighting the vent, but definitely sedated because there's just no way you can just chill and relax on the vent when your breathing pattern has changed this much. Let's say inverse ratio ventilation isn't quite enough. We're going to pick things up a notch here and go to high frequency oscillatory ventilation. So we use these ventilators called VDR ventilators at my hospital and they will deliver 300 to 3000 breaths per minute. And that is not a typo, that is a crazy fast vent rate and it kind of sounds like yeah. Um, and it's super fast and obviously again no one's going to comply with a vent on those settings so these people are paralyzed chemically paralyzed with something like nimbex so that their body doesn't fight against the vent and the vent does all the work so if your patients on vdr they're going to be a one-to-one -one for sure the respiratory therapist is probably going to be a one-to-one -one as well so the two of you will be working very closely together adjusting the vent keeping your patients safe etc they will also be using, okay, so we talked a little bit about PEEP earlier. I mentioned it on the pressure control mode. So the thing with PEEP is that it helps you keep FiO2 levels as low as possible. So you always want to use as little oxygen as possible to reduce the effects of oxygen toxicity. If someone's on a vent at, you know, 80, 90, 100% for more than a few days, that is not a good thing. Their lungs are going to suffer the results of oxygen toxicity and the main thing that's going to happen is fibrotic tissue development. So what we do is we try to use PEEP to keep the FiO2 as low as possible. So PEEP helps keep the alveoli open. It aids in alveolar recruitment. So those little um, pathways from alveoli to alveoli, if you remember those, PEEP kind of helps knock those little doors open and recruit neighboring alveoli to participate in gas exchange. So part of that ARDS protocol is going to be using PEEP as part of that adjustment with the PEEP, the pressure support, the FiO2, etc. Now medications that the patient's going to be on really depends on the situation, depends on what is causing their ARDS. They'll definitely be on respiratory medications like albuterol and Zopinex and whatnot, bronchodilators and such. They may be paralyzed like I said, especially if their mode of ventilation does not allow them to willingly let the ventilator do the work. Some patients just on a regular pressure control mode have to be paralyzed because they just buck the vent so much. You will also probably have your patient sedated. Hopefully you're giving them pain medication and most likely antibiotics of some kind since one of the many, many, many causes of ARDS that I see is an ammonia or an aspiration pneumonia or um, sepsis. So they're going to be on all kinds of stuff. And then another therapy that may be considered for your patient is prone positioning. This is something that we don't do a ton of. I think I've seen it twice in the four and a half, five years that I've been working in the intensive care unit. And prone positioning is intense. It is really scary to A, put your patient on that bed 
that turns completely upside down. Um, it's very labor intensive. And if there is an emergency, you can't do anything for the patient until you get the bed turned right side up. So these beds look like big, big kind of cylinders and they're full of these cushions inside. And I was able to get in one at our skills fair and it was actually pretty comfortable, but um, you get the patient in the bed and then you pack all these cushions around their body so that as the bed moves, they their weight is distributed up against cushions and not up against anything that can cause any damage or skin breakdown. So you pack them in with the cushions all around them and then you close the hatches so they're closed in like in a tube and there's more cushions on that. So they're basically surrounded 365 degrees by cushion. And then you've got all of your lines, hopefully they're all labeled beautifully straightened out, um, going out through one of the openings along with your ventilator and tube feeding and all of that. And then you get all your friends to come in the room. Your respiratory therapist will be there to watch the vent. You'll have at least one other nurse there watching your lines, maybe two, especially if you've got lines coming out in different places. There'll be somebody to operate the bed and maybe somebody there just in case things don't go as planned. So it's a definite group project. Prone positioning is no joke at all. If you want to see what these beds look like and how they function, I think Rotoprone has some really good information on their website. That's R-O-T-O. P-R-O-N-E, rotoprone beds, and you can get an idea of how intense this therapy is. So the idea behind it is that with dependent lung areas being the most damaged, prone positioning helps bring blood flow and gas exchange to the parts of the lung that maybe aren't as damaged. And studies have shown that if you do it early enough, it can be helpful. So it's something to have in there for your treatment for your patient. And then as your patient gets better, you're going to be trying like crazy to wean their vent. It is a constant process, not just something for day shift to do, but even on the night shift, I know that the thought is that oh, the patient needs to rest. No, the patient needs to get better. The patient doesn't know if it's day or night, trust me. So they need to be weaned as appropriate and you'll wean off things like your ABGs, your pulse oximetry, and doing something called a daily awakening and breathing trial. So what that involves is coordinating with your respiratory therapist to get the patient off their sedation and do a CPAP trial where you put them on CPAP mode when they're able to be awake, follow commands, things like that. So in CPAP mode, the patient does most of the work. They will initiate the breaths, to show that they can do that, that they can pull good volumes. And the vent is there just kind of as backup. It'll give them a little extra support because it is harder to breathe through that straw, that ET tube. So we give them a little extra help to kind of negate that effect. And then the vent is also there. Uh, it'll go into backup mode if the patient doesn't breathe for a period of time. Just because the vent will kick in doesn't mean you don't have to watch them closely. You'll wanna watch their anxiety level. If they are hypoxic, they're going to get really anxious. You're going to watch their pulse oximetry. You may do an ABG on CPAP. You'll watch their work of breathing, things like that.
if things go well on CPAP trial and they tolerate it uh, for several hours and they've been on low-ish FiO2s and not a ton of PEEP and their chest x-rays getting better, then it's probably somebody that you're going to consider extubating. And you always, always want to extubate them as soon as possible. If you are on a ventilator, well, hopefully not you, but if your patient is on a ventilator for two weeks, that's kind of the time frame for if we can't get the tube out, we're going to go to tracheostomy and do more prolonged gentle weaning. So about a two-week period, and then they're looking at a tracheostomy. Um, just because a patient's on a trach doesn't mean they're going to be on one forever. Um, they will do the same kinds of things. They'll still be on the ventilator. They'll still do their daily awakening and breathing trials. They'll start doing CPAP for hopefully longer and longer and longer periods. From there, they'll do a T-MIST trial where they're just on some oxygen that is uh, humidified. And then from there, just a little oxygen mass sitting up against their trach. And then from there on room air, and then from there the trach is gone. So it's a longer, slower weaning process. And it is often needed. ARDS is intense, the recovery is long. And so just know that your patient may be in for a really long road. And You'll also want to get nutrition started early. As soon as you intubate the patient, have one of your buddies go to the back and grab an OG tube, get that in there. When they come to confirm the ET tube placement with x-ray, they can confirm your OG tube as well. So that's basically ARDS treatment, tests, assessments, and whatnot in a nutshell. There will be a lot of education that you'll need to provide the patient. Um, for a good part of this, your patient may be completely sedated and unaware so you may be giving education to family and telling them why their family member needs to be sedated this can be very upsetting for people or it can be a blessing it just depends on if they wish their loved one could be awake and communicate or if they just want their loved one to not even be aware of all the things that are happening um, if they need to be paralyzed that's another big education component you would um, need to explain things like pressure ulcer prevention, DVT prevention, hospital-acquired pneumonia prevention, just kind of all those things, all those interventions that we do. This is why we're having to wake your patient up, you know, your family member up every hour because we have to do this and this and this and this. Um, a lot of emotional support as well would be needed. ARDS, again, long prolonged recovery, very high mortality rate, very scary for family members and a tough road for the patient themselves. So I hope that is helpful to you. I will get that picture. Some kind of, I'll find some x-ray somewhere online and link to it so you guys can see what an ARDS chest x-ray looks like. And then if you have any questions, you can shoot them over to straightanurse at gmail.com or put them on the website. That's fine too. And I appreciate you tuning in and I hope to get something up in the next week or two. So if you have any really great ideas for something I was thinking about asthma since we're kind of in respiratory mode right now had a really interesting asthma case a while back so we can talk about that so but if you have any other thoughts or ideas and things you'd like to hear drop me a line I'd love to hear it thanks again everyone and be safe out there this podcast is a production of straightanursingstudent.com
From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts.